So we're uh, in our origin series. So this is our uh, look at Genesis. And what we've been doing with the book of Genesis is we've been having a look at what the text actually says. So often we, we read the Bible and we have a whole heap of theology and, and our own culture that we bring to the text. And when we read it, we read it through this lens of our culture, of a theology that we've grown up in, and also our Western eyes, our Western uh, mindset. And so what we've been attempting to to do is become aware of those things and begin to read the Bible in its original context to the best of our ability. So what was this text saying and meaning to the people of the ancient Near East, who it was intended for, who the author intended to read it? Uh, so that's what we've been doing the best we can to try and become aware of how we're reading it and the eyes in which we're using so when we began Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we spoke about what creation meant. And what we started to talk about was this idea that creation was not uh, exactly the speaking of matter into being, but instead it was more about the naming and assigning of order and function. So that's what our, our little shape over here is. It's the idea is that there's all this kind of chaos going on with lines and strings and things going everywhere, but in the middle there's an ordered shape. And for the most part, that's what the creation story is all about, that there was something there and what God did, what Father, Son and Spirit did was he spoke that into order. God named the chaos and brought order from the chaos and created this space that is called Eden. And so when uh, it's spoken of, it's spoken of more as imagine you move into a house and as you step into this house, there's boxes and things all over the place. Once you've ordered your home, it goes from being a house to being a home. So the Genesis narrative, the, the starting of our, of our story, if you like, as people, is about how God turned this mess into a home. Okay, so that's the whole idea. It's not a house, it's a home. And that's the story of God creating a space for us to be in. So that's what creation meant. And then we've got Adam and Eve. We spoke about them last week. And Adam and Eve worked together as counterpartners. So they were, they were made, they were created. And their role within the community, their role within the garden was a priestly type function. So what they did was they stewarded God's presence. They stewarded God's grace, His rightness. When the Bible speaks about creation being good, it's not perfect, but what it is, is fully functional. Everything works exactly how it's intended to work. Everything is spot on. It doesn't make it perfect, but what it means is this ground will grow. You're not fighting the weeds and the termites and the pests and all of those sorts of things. In the garden, things were good. So you put a seed in the ground and there was rivers and there was water and the seed would grow. You still had to work, but you didn't have to work nearly as hard as you had to work outside of the garden for the land to produce fruit because it was good and God made his home in that space and that's what Eden is about. Eden is about God setting up home and Eden was the place where God lived, where his presence was and Adam and Eve were there and their role was to steward others into that presence so that they could discover what life with Father, Son and Spirit was all about. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Now we step into Genesis chapter 3, and this is where things get 
a little bit crazy and a little bit tricky. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So here we've got our setup. So we've got this talking snake and this talking snake is having a conversation with Eve. We know that Eve and Adam are here in this place and now this animal is speaking to them and we've, we've got the beginning of what we commonly know as the fall. So they're, they're told they're not to touch, they're not to have anything to do with the trees, uh, with these one tree in the garden. So there's two, there's the life tree we spoke last week about how the life tree, the, the fruit on the life tree perpetuated your life. So it kept you going. As long as you continued to eat that fruit, you stayed alive. You didn't die. So they weren't told not to touch that one. They could eat that one. So their life was perpetual. But the other tree was the good bad tree, the knowledge tree. And the knowledge tree, they were told they weren't allowed to be anywhere near. You will not certainly die. So this is the snake and the snake is talking. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, uh, sorry, and also gaining for wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So Adam's there and he's silent. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. So, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So this is what we commonly refer to as the fall. And this is where this snake steps into the story and the snake convinces them of something and then there is significant repercussions. So when we start talking about the serpent and we start talking about the snake, what are we actually speaking about? Because for the longest time in, in my understanding, the snake was always Satan. And how I always had this question, how did or why did God make the snake? And how the heck did the snake get into the garden? Okay, they're good, they're good questions. The questions I have. Do you agree? Excellent. So the serpent and the snake is very, very, very interesting. So when we start looking with ancient eyes to the best of our capacity in the, in the modern Western world, what we start to see is that the serpent is all over ancient Near Eastern texts. The serpent is all around the place. And the serpent's uh, symbolism and who the serpent is, is everywhere. John Walton says that the serpent in the ancient world, these were common. They were seen as possessing mystical wisdom. They were seen as demonic. And they were seen as hostile creatures. They were the symbols of health, of fertility, of occultic type wisdom, and also chaos and evil. 
The serpent played a significant role in the mythologies of the ancient Near East. So this is not just a one-off. It's just not in our story. In many, many of the ancient Near Eastern stories, the snakes are all the way through. They're all over the place. Okay? So the serpents were a mixed bag. They were the, the sort of the, the symbolism of wisdom and, and some sort of power and strength, but they weren't necessarily seen as evil. But they were seen as chaotic. They weren't seen as we would tend to think of them as, as the devil, as the Satan. Okay, so in ancient uh, Near Eastern places, so in the Egyptian stories, for example, there's a, a, an Egyptian god god called Horus and Horus is famous for having this giant sandal and what Horus would do is he would go around and find these serpents because in the in the pharaoh sort of stories as they went from the death to the afterlife as they traveled on that road the road was littered with serpents and the serpents would be always trying to get a hold of them and stop them from getting where it was that they wanted to go and so Horus this uh, this god was famous because he had this giant sandal and he would squash the heads he would squash the heads of these serpents that were trying to take him down all the time sounds familiar to a little bit of what god says uh, a little bit later on so we've got this serpent and the serpent is speaking okay so genesis chapter 3 i want to show you something that was really surprising for me so genesis 3 1 now the serpent was more crafty so this word crafty is an interesting word and what it means is it doesn't mean uh evil it's a, it's a hebrew word orum and the way that it's translated is it's translated crafty prudent a prudent man, sensible, sensible, a sensible man, and shrewd. So crafty doesn't mean evil. Crafty and evil are very different things. The snake is this representation of some form of wisdom, but also chaos. Okay, so Brad and I are going to try and display a little bit of something so we've got our snake here do you see see what we've done to his eyes that's paper so what we're trying to do is try and make it visual for you so if this is our illustration our piece of artwork here of chaos and disorder and then in the middle here is order what we've got is this snake and what the snake is is the snake is a creature who's come from here and the creature is trying to make its way into here does that make sense so when it's spoken of it's not spoken of as a demonic satan what it's spoken of is something from the disorder something from the chaos that is trying to make its way and bring its chaos (coughs) that's probably enough smoke to bring its chaos we're baptists we're baptists we don't do smoke bring its chaos into this place of order does that make sense you're quiet. Does it make sense? Fantastic. Excellent. There's our snake down there. Oh, it's all atmospheric, isn't it? So Genesis 3.1 says that the serpent was more crafty. And who made the serpent? The Lord God. So God made the serpent. And chances are that Adam and Eve named it. So this was not a creature that they were unfamiliar with. Because the Bible tells us that God made the serpent. Okay? So 
It's not a story about the evilness of the serpent or the chaos of the serpent, although that's part of the story, okay? Not at all. It's what we're learning about is what Adam and Eve do with the temptation, what Adam and Eve do with what the serpent offers them, what the serpent brings to them. That's the point of the story. Not that there's it's evil or there's chaos, but what they do with what they're given. Make sense? Here's our man, Freetham again. He says, The text doesn't focus on the serpent per se, but on the human response to the possibilities the serpent presents. As such, the serpent presents a metaphor representing anything in God's good creation that could present options to human beings, the choice of which can seduce them away from God. The tree itself becomes the temptation while the serpent facilitates the options the trees present. So God has made these things and these things are pronounced good. They're functional, they're right, they're fruitful. They're good for us to enjoy. But once we take them and if we do something bad with them, if we take these good things and we use them poorly, then they become chaos. They become destruction. They become death. I mean, just think about alcohol, for example. Alcohol is not a bad thing. Alcohol in moderation is, is okay. It's healthy. It's not great for our body, but it's, it's okay. Alcohol out of proportion destroys us, destroys our body, destroys everything. You look at drugs. We look at opium-based drugs. These things used well help us with pain and make surgeries possible and all these incredible things taken out of proportion, chaos is brought into them. What happens to it? Opiate, we've got addiction, we've got destroyed lives, all of those sorts of things. Good things can become terrible things if they're not used the way that they were intended to be used. And that's what we're learning about, what the fall was. Okay, what did it mean for sin to enter into our story? I hope it's starting to become a little bit clearer to you. So as I show you these pictures, uh, let's just quickly see. So what have we got? We've got Adam and Eve, and what else have we got? So we'll Come on, talk to me, church, or I'm just going to keep asking you. What have we got? Serpent, and what else is there in that picture? Tree. Okay, next one. Okay, we've got Adam and Eve. It's definitely a man and a woman, isn't it? We've got an Adam and Eve. What else have we got? Serpent, tree, angel. Okay, next one. What have we got? What else? Okay, one more. Adam and Eve, serpent tree. Last one, this is, this is uh, Michelangelo, Sistine Chapel. This is on the roof of the Sistine Chapel. What have we got? Adam and Eve, serpent, and what else? Tree. Okay, do you know, when you start looking at the text, we don't actually know if they're in the garden. When you actually read the text, it doesn't say that it took place at the tree. It doesn't say that it took place in the garden. This conversation could have been happening outside of the garden. It didn't necessarily tell us. The text doesn't say that it happened in there at the tree. We all just assume that it does. We all just assume that it took place. Remember, we're talking about three different spaces here, that this is what the text speaks of, three different places. We've got disorder, which is the craziness where all the lines are, okay? And uh, this is sort of, it's 
it's evil in a sense. So it's not like, so there's three different spaces. So you've got disorder and non-order. So non-order is where all the, all the crazy is. And what that is, is that's earthquakes and fires. We live in non-order. So in Hawaii at the moment, there is um, the, the volcano and there's lava. That lava doesn't have an intention. It's not maliciously trying to destroy people. It's just, it's, it's disordered creation. Storms and hurricanes, disordered creation. Uh, that sort of stuff is taking place and then there's this ordered space. So this conversation could have happened outside of Eden between the snake and Adam and Eve. It didn't have to necessarily take place in the garden. So they've taken this fruit. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And both the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Remember her role was as a connecto. We spoke about that last week. Her role was to spot danger. Part of her calling was to be the eyes looking where he couldn't see and, and warning him where there was danger. And, and in this part of her role, she's failed. And Adam, we see, is standing right there with her. So as all of this is taking place, as the the snake is speaking with Eve and they're having this conversation, Adam is silent. The namer of the creatures, the one who was brought out of the garden to care for the garden and tend for the garden, he is silent. Ever been in a marriage with a silent husband? Been in a marriage where he won't speak or he won't communicate or he won't enter in. Been in a situation where one party is silent and controls the room with their voiceless communication. Adam was present and silent. He allowed the snake and Eve. Why didn't he step in? Why didn't he speak? What would have happened in humanity's story if Adam or Eve had stepped in and said to the snake, no, no thanks, and moved on? Things would have been very, very different for us. So what did it mean after they took the fruit? Walton says, I propose, I propose, I propose, by disobediently taking the fruit, they were trying to be like God, by positioning themselves at the center of the source of order. So what is he saying? We had a role and a place. There was a system set out. And in that system, Father, Son and Spirit are central. In that system, God is the one that holds it all together. And Genesis 3 is chaos stepping into this ordered system. And then that system, we then take this place at the center of it all. And instead of us revolving around God, we say to God, you can now revolve around me. And the problem with that is we are not eternal. And the problem with that is we are not capable of managing everything like God is, because God is eternal and God is spirit. So the moment that that happens, the system breaks down. The system falls apart. And what happens is we break down and we fall apart. Theologian Baxter Kruger says, the actual fall came before they ate the fruit. They fell when they stopped believing the truth and believed the lie of the serpent. In that moment, the razor cut through their souls. Assurance was shredded. 
and their anxiety infu- and then anxiety infiltrated the scene of human history their assurance and security and peace were destroyed and their souls were baptized into a lethal rue of anxiety insecurity and guilt adam and eve suddenly knew good and evil Kruger's saying to us, in that moment when they took the fruit, their eyes were opened. Yes, it was. And this surety that they had, this peace that they had. Remember, they were naked and unashamed. There was no embarrassment. There was no shame. They were completely open with each other, enjoying each other fully. They were secure. And after they've taken this fruit, after they've put their cells in the center, there's this rip, this rift within the human soul and our security is gone. It is sucked away. It is gone. And what is left are naked people who are frightened. The fall is not about an angry God who now becomes mad because we've done the wrong thing. The fall is what sin does, what awareness does to people who are not yet ready for it. When I was a kid, I had this friend, and my mate in primary school, he, I would go up to his house. He lived around the corner from us. So I would go to his house, and his mum and dad were the cool parents who didn't really care what he did, okay? And so he had a TV in his room. Now, this was normally, every family had like one TV. He had a TV in his room. And so he said, Aaron, have you ever watched a horror movie? And I said, yeah, yeah, lots. I've never watched a horror movie in my life. So he puts on this horror movie, and we're watching this film, and I'm in primary school, and there's this guy running around cutting everybody up with an axe, and I am just wigging out like crazy. But I'm trying to be cool, you know? Yeah, yeah, I'm not scared. I'm not scared at all. So I've watched this film, and I'm cool and everything like that, and I've gone home, and it's fine. It's still in the back of my brain. It's fine. But then when it got dark, my life changed from that moment on. I went from not being too worried about too much at all to going to bed waiting for this axe to come and cut me up. Um, that's knowledge of good. I've stepped outside of my bounds. I've tried to take something that I wasn't ready for and it's come into my life. And what it's done is it's shredded my security. It's shredded it. It's taken it. You see a child running around and they're free, aren't they? All they worry about is what they're going to eat next. And who's going to give me a cuddle? They've, there's this beautiful freedom to them. And they can be naked and happy and around they go and their little bodies are running around. They are not thinking about how am I going to make the next mortgage payment. They're not thinking about the situation in Syria. They're not thinking about what's going to happen with Trump and King John un and nuclear weapons. They're not, they don't even have any awareness of that at all. And they don't need to, do they? Us in the fall, we lost our security when we stepped away from who we actually are. After the fall happens, Genesis 3, 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sounds of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man, Where are you? His response, he answered, This is Adam speaking. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Let's read that together. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So what does sin do to us? It strips us of our security. What does it do to us? It leaves us feeling naked and exposed. And what does it do to the way we relate to other people? What do we do? We we hide. 
We're afraid because we're naked, so we hide. Adam and Eve step into this new story, and not only do they hide, because the next thing that they start to do is they start blaming each other. They're afraid because they're naked, so they hide, and then we blame. Because blame is what we put on when we're trying to cover ourselves. Blame is the way that we try and hide. Very much the same as addiction. This is the, I think, this is the core, this is the root of most addiction. Addiction is the clothes we wear when we feel lost and exposed. It's a way that we try and cover ourselves with something so as that we can make sense of the world enough so we can step out and into it. Addiction is a way of us trying to manage what we feel is unmanageable. Afraid, naked and hiding. This is where brokenness enters into our story. We change forever at this point. God speaks to them and after he speaks to them, he speaks to them directly and he speaks to the woman and he says, there's going to be two things that happen for you. There's going to be pain. Uh, There's going to be pain in childbirth and there's going to be desire for your husband. When we start looking at this word pain, it's not as we imagine it to be. Pain is better translated anxiety. So he's speaking about the anxiety that she will have as she tries to conceive a child, the anxiety and fear that she has of will this child survive through pregnancy, and then the anxiety and pain and fear of the actual birth of this child. Those things pre-sin were far less than when they're posting because they've gone from being inside the order of God, they've stepped out into the non-order of the world where things are just all going a little bit crazy and they're not really made to be outside of there, but now they're going to be. And God says, as a result, you're going to have this increase in anxiety and it's going to be hurtful for you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost you. And then he speaks about desire. And that desire... I always thought of that as a woman trying to control this relationship. But in the Hebrew, the desire is more speaking to her, her desire to be a mother. And it says, sort of as you start to unpack it, her desire to be a mother means that she is going to be in a position of vulnerability because he decides whether or not he's going to be with her or not. And so this innate, innate drive in her to produce, because Eve means life, Uh, He has now got a significant say in that in a way that they wouldn't have before. So what he's saying is this desire, this urge in you is going to cause you to be in a position of vulnerability. That's what sin has done inside the female story. And then to Adam, he speaks about his curse is going to be linked to the earth, to the production of food and to the planet. And when it speaks about curse, it's not some sort of magical spell or some sort of hex. What it's speaking of is this kind of withdrawing of God. So what it's speaking of is in here, you've got the presence of God. Within this circle, God's presence is there and it's fruitful and it's good and everything works as it's intended to work. Now they're going to be outside of the garden and outside of the garden, there's a level of withdrawal that God has for them. And he says to them, things will still happen for you, but it's going to be through the sweat of your brow. You are going to have to work your tail off to get the land to produce fruit. 
It's not going to be like it was before. It's not going to just happen. You have to work really hard to make it work now. The story finishes in Genesis 3, 21 to 24. And it says, The Lord God, so it's all broken down now. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now... The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach his hand out and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove them out and placed at the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So they were pushed out of the garden. Why? Because God said, if you, in this broken state, if you take the tree of life, this broken state will go on forever. It'll go on forever. It will never end. It will never stop. And so in order for there to be some sort of redemption, in order for there to be some sort of reconciliation, some sort of peace within us, they had to stop Adam and Eve from taking the fruit that would keep the system going forever and ever and ever. So God, I was always sort of under the impression that this was an angry God who was pushing them out and you start looking at some of the artwork and it's this rah, this bigger. I don't hear that in this story. What I hear is God takes the life of an animal to clothe. He takes their attempt to cover their nakedness and their shame and he takes their feeble attempt of fig leaves removes that and he blesses them with the grace of equipped clothes because they're no longer in the place of order. They're going out into the place of non-order where for them, they're going to be fighting the elements. And he blesses them with these clothes that prepares them as best as he can for life outside of Eden. I don't hear it as angry and mad and upsetness. I hear it as sadness and grief and a preparation for them to do the best they can when they step outside of good, the good space, when they step outside of Eden. They step into a place where they're going to be more and more on their own, where they're going to be in a place where they weren't exactly designed to be. So when we speak about uh, what sin does, afraid, naked, hiding and blaming, This is how we are when we feel exposed. And most of us feel exposed when we feel a little bit vulnerable. And that vulnerability is incredibly uncomfortable for us. That vulnerability is what we try and hide. We try and put fig leaves over it all the time. We call that our personality, don't we? We put these things, I'm just not very talkative. I talk too much. I'm just a quiet person. Uh, I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. Uh, I need things to be this way. I need things to be that way. And so we're running around trying to force creation and force people into patterns and styles of relating that make me feel most comfortable. What that means is that makes me feel the least naked. And that's great if you've got one person. But you put two, three, four, you put a hundred in a room and what happens? What happens? 
We all start trying to make order happen all over the place, don't we? We all start trying to make the world easy for me. And at the core of it is not a desire to step into friendship and fellowship with other people. At the core of it is a desire to stay hidden. When you get married and you step into a married relationship or a committed relationship, you step in, you start to see really quickly that the person you married isn't all that they told you that they were. And they start to see that maybe you highlighted the good stuff and hid the other stuff. Maybe they start to see that a little bit. And when you get married, it's this point where you come into this place and we hurt each other terribly when we try and keep our hidden stuff hidden. Where instead of embracing our vulnerability, instead of holding on to it and stepping into fellowship, stepping into relationship, we try the very best we can to force the other person to not bring my, my exposed vulnerability forward. And we hurt each other terribly. We absolutely do whatever we can to poke that other person back so as that they stop seeing what it is that we're embarrassed of and frightened of. Amen? Do you agree? Yeah. It's a pretty incredible thing when you start to see that that exposure, that vulnerability, that's where intimacy happens. And intimacy is not just a husband and a wife. But if you have a friend and you want to love that friend, you want to embrace that friend, you want to step into a deeper reality with them, then you have to be able to hold yourself in the vulnerability because that's where the magic happens. That's where the intimacy happens. When you're able to hold yourself vulnerable enough and allow them to see and know in your soul that their seeing of you will not end you. Because when God came walking in the garden, he knew what Adam had done. He's God. When God comes walking in the garden, he's not raging. He's not angry. He's not trying to kill somebody or make somebody pay. He asks, where are you? And Adam said, I'm afraid, naked hiding. His, his holiness, his love, his good intention exposed Adam's vulnerability and he hated it. And so as God tried to move towards him, as love tried to move towards him, he ran as fast as he could. And before, as he was running, he said, it's this woman you gave me, she made me sin. And he throws her under the bus. That vulnerability is the place where we will find our greatest level of intimacy. That vulnerability is what God and where God wants to meet you and engage you and spend time with you. That place of vulnerability is where your partner, if they're trustworthy, is that's where your partner and you will find the greatest level of intimacy in your life. If you are able to hold on to yourself in that place of vulnerability, step towards each other, you will have the greatest sex you've ever imagined in your life. Because that's where good sex comes from. It doesn't come from our bodies looking a certain way. Great sex comes from you being able to hold yourself and step in into that place of intimacy and enjoy. That's where that fantastic connection comes from. And that's the gift that God intended it to be. Great friendships are born in that place as well. And that's where relationship with God is at its most alive. When we stop covering ourselves with fig leaves and we stop hiding behind bushes and we step into the light, God is good and He loves you. 
and He wants to be in friendship and relationship with you. Amen? We're going to, uh, Brad's going to play some music and I'd like to pray with you. If anyone would like to pray, we don't do this all that often, but I'm going to just stay down the front here. If you would like to pray, if something has, uh, you'd like some prayer for whatever, please feel free. I'm just going to come and stand down the front here. Brad's going to play the song. Uh, and if you would like some prayer, some prayer, please feel free to come down. If you don't, absolutely no pressure in any shape, form or description. But I will pray and then I'll come down here. God, I thank, you that, I thank you that in this story, as Adam and Eve introduced chaos into what was so good, as they tried to bring in this thing, as they stepped outside of who they were, that your movement towards them was a movement of grief and sadness and was a movement of cover, was not a movement of exposing them and shaming them and humiliating them, uh, it was, you've done this and now this, this is the result. This is the brokenness that you are now going to experience. And then Jesus came. Lord, we see in Jesus as he enters into this world, as he, he goes about his business in Galilee and Nazareth and Jerusalem, this force of order comes in and these people who should be frightened of him, these women who were prostitutes and these men who were tax collectors and these people who had leprosy and sickness, these people who were pushed to the outer. When Jesus walks around, they flock to him because he doesn't care about their nakedness. He doesn't care about their vulnerability and they're able to experience this being in his presence and loved being in His presence and known, being in His presence and being healed. Father God, that is our prayer today because the same Spirit that was in Jesus, the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead, the same Spirit that empowered Him to do the miraculous things He was able to do, that Spirit is in us. Acts 1 tells us that the Spirit filled and sent out into the world and Lord, that Spirit is the same Spirit. And Lord, I pray and ask for my brothers and sisters, for me, Lord, those areas where I hide, those areas where I feel vulnerable, those places where I don't want to step into friendship and relationship with you and with others. God, would you give me the courage? Would you give me the presence to know that I can be brave and I can make a step forward? I can make a movement forward, whether it's on my hands and knees or whether it's a big step, it's a movement. Give us the capacity and the availability to be brave, I pray. You're a good God and you love us. And we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the spirit that makes it alive. And we're so grateful that we can come here and explore it together. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said,